This podcast is brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Keep Joy on air by becoming a member, a subscriber or donate. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community. They tried to make me go to rehab, I said no, no, no. Yes, I've been black, but when I come back, no, no, no. I ain't got the time, and if my daddy thinks I'm fine, they try to make me go to rehab, I won't go, go, go. Uh, good evening and welcome to Hooked. Joy 94.9's new program about addiction. Research shows that the LGBTI community has addiction problems of at least twice that of the general population, and we want to explore why and how this has come about. There are many suffering addiction, many more that are affected by those in active addiction, and people that are grateful in recovery. My name is David. G'day, everybody. I'm Russ, and... Uh, Happy we birthday, with... Russ. Oh, thank you very much. I made the big 5-3 today, 53 years, and feeling pretty darn good. Um, what we'd like to discuss tonight, David, is some of the reasons behind this problem that the GLBTI community, you know, it does have a lot of um, addiction problems. Um, we want to know are there pathways towards recovery and change. How does addiction affect your loved ones, family members and partners of those in active addiction? Um, you know, you and I are not the experts oh, no. in these fields, but just a couple of friends who both happen to be in recovery. But we believe, and I think for good reason, there needs to be a conversation started in our community. Well, as the LGBTI community, we are usually a little bit ahead of everybody else and there does need to be a conversation. Um, look, you know, if you'd like to join that conversation, uh, you can SMS us on 0427 JOIN 949 anytime during the program. That's 0427 569 Or email us at onair at joy.org.au and we have our own email hooked at joy.org.au. If you're experiencing immediate problems or if content of this program raises issues that cause you distress, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or lifeline.org.au or Beyond Blue on 1300 226636, which is beyondblue.org.au. Hey, what's been happening, Russ? Well, other I than just your birthday, to um, ask our listeners to um, think ahead tonight because we'll be talking about marijuana, weed, cannabis. So, if you'd like to message in any questions for our expert tonight, we've got Sebastian, who's going to be our expert on marijuana. Um, if you'd like to ask us any questions about this or you have some thoughts on marijuana, you can SMS us on 0427 JOY949, 0427 569 949, or you can email us at onair at joy.org.au. So marijuana is the topic tonight and we would love to hear from you if you have anything to say. Now, something that you were talking to me about earlier on today was about uh, the Rainbow Serpent Festival. Well, let me tell you, David, it's in the news. It is. Uh, I watched the 6 o'clock, the 6.30 and the 7 o'clock tonight, and it was all about that rainbow. So for those of you that don't know, Rainbow Serpent is a uh, festival. It's festival season um, out at Lexton. which Goes is, for four days. Yeah, it's about 161 k's west of Melbourne in a little country town there. And um, it's been going for 20 years. Um, but this year it's made um, the headlines because of the drugs that were there. And um, I guess um, 
caused uh, the authorities a lot of drama because the um, the police turned up and unfortunately over the course of the four days seven um, people were hospitalised due to um, oh, overdose or overheating. Um, there could have been a number of reasons for that. Yeah, look, I hear that actually a couple of those people are still in hospital and they're yeah. fighting for life. I was talking to Simon James, one of our news readers here, and yes. he said, yeah, definitely a couple are still fighting for life. There was also a news article this morning which was about festivals in New South Wales. Correct. And the Health Minister of New South Wales was there. Now, we know that they're not going to do pill testing and that's definitely a policy of their government up yes, there. it is. And they increased the presence at their festivals. There were about three festivals on over around Sydney mm-hmm. uh, during this last weekend. Yep. And they'd increased messages about uh, overheating and certainly seeking medical advice. Uh, the, we had one of the, the, the people that led the teams of medicos and uh, people in those tents uh, to treat people and they said, you know, they made sure that everybody was aware that they're not a policing force, they're just there to look after their health. Quite a number of people, I think it was about 25 or give or take a couple, that were hospitalised. They were taken out of those festivals and taken to emergency wards in hospitals. They certainly had some people on life support, quite a number of people on life support and one particular festival, I think 17 of those cases came from that particular festival. So it was to do, the messages that were spread around that festival was about overheating because obviously you're, uh, as you overheat because you're still dancing or maybe you're still taking drugs and it is a warm weekend. Um, New South Wales did a very big social um, a social campaign on that. As well. But to. then obviously your organs start failing and this was the sort of problems that they were finding with those 25 people that were sent off to hospital. Some of them still in critical conditions as well. Well, I heard that doctor talk this morning as well and she believed that um, um, that they saved their lives because yeah. they were there. Yeah. Yeah. So, I so mean, yeah, like even thing. if we didn't see 25 deaths, even mm. one death is too many. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, yep. But at least that didn't wasn't the case this over that weekend. Now, what I wonder about is the festival organisers. You know, they seem to be washing their hands of these responsibilities. I'm sure they have tickets or conditions of entry which, uh, you know, mean that they're not liable for these things. But the New South Wales government, for instance, would have spent, and they wouldn't say how much, but I'd say they spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on ensuring that these support services were there in place. Right. Well, I think, um, you know, we, we, if we um, have any festival organisers that are listening tonight or if anyone knows of a festival organiser that can be put in touch with us, I would like to know what um, responsibilities they have to an event like that and whether they have to themselves pay for nurses, doctors, um, Ambulance Victoria to be on site or whether they're just automatically supplied when they get their permit to have the festival. Who knows? I so don't know. At the same time, they wouldn't be um, liable for what people actually mm. do to them. Themselves. You know, there is talk that uh, the council around the Lexton area, I'm not sure what the name of the council is, but they're going to get together with other, you know, Victoria Health and other organisations and they're going to discuss how to move forward on this. I expect that they will ask the festival organisers to be there as well. Whether well, they'll uh, attend Victoria's or not. independent um, MP, Fiona Patton, she was on the news tonight and basically saying, you know, when are we going to get the fact that the police and policing is not the answer here? She... Um, really, really desperately wants to see health and education intervention rather than police intervention. I oh know, that's another side to the story and we will certainly try and get Fiona and on another, in future weeks. Sorry. Yeah, that'd be great. Another thing that I, uh, they did interview one of the festival girls on the news tonight. The question was, have you taken drugs today? And she replied <laughs> with, it's a festival, of course I've taken drugs. So you really, she couldn't be any more 
honest uh, than that when she's discussing what she'd done today. And I mean, the nice the, the nice thing about her, I guess, being on TV and out in public and and stating that yes, she she had taken drugs, that, that she wasn't judged by anybody. The police didn't come running up to her or anything. And you know, the the people that are trying to help these people in addiction at the moment are really trying to force uh, as much education and health uh, prevention over over these policing. And look, that's an attitudinal change from yeah. let's say ten years ago, which would have been shut it down. Uh, we're just going to make sure none of this happens. But and at the I'm same really time, being, the Lexington Council yeah. area is almost getting getting the point after 20 years of saying, look, maybe we need to say goodbye. You know, they would have said, well, oh, we know. love having the festival because it brings people to the but area, it provides jobs and everything. Did this all happen and we were all flying under the radar? That's what I, I don't know. know. Or is it that the drugs have become so strong this past... 12 months, 24 months, that all of a sudden it's on everyone's radar because that festival in particular has been going for 20 years. I'm sure there's festivals all over the country that have been going for decades. And yeah. this is all flown under the, the radar. I'm, look, I, and I'm not being critical of the police at all. I think the police um, are doing what they're told to do and mm-hmm. they have to um, run with instructions from the you know, Premier of Victoria and the Parliament and then Police Command. Oh, this, the question that people were asking in my circle today were, were things like, you know, really, did you have to arrest 15 people? What, what you gave? Well, yeah, you gave warnings those, to yeah, forty-one people. There were sixteen people fined for for, dr- um, for drug driving. Well, maybe that was appropriate. Yeah, I think but that no, is appropriate. Know. And also, often, usually, the rests are to do with supplying drugs to other people at the festival. So. Well, there was news of a seven- and that is illegal. There was news of a seventeen-year-old that was arrested on the weekend. Not sure if it was New South or Victoria, but he had six hundred drugs on him. Oh, maybe not for yeah. personal use. No. Hey, um, just because people would have been going away and probably camping or staying in that area now. You you wanted to mention something because you are, a, after all, in, in your daytime life, a travel agent. I wasn't going to say a recovering <laughs> travel agent, but you are a travel agent. And no, I think I'm did, a recovering well, travel you know, agent. There are people out there that are listening that are also in recovery in uh, addic- of addictions. What sort of tips would you have I've if you were travelling? A few questions I'd like to ask you. Yeah. See what you think. Okay. So, um, obviously, you're in recovery. You're no longer taking drugs and alcohol anymore and you're off for your first trip. Now, this might be a weekend away sure. with a couple of friends or it could be on a plane and you get off interstate or go overseas. What are your thoughts on taking a safe, supportive friend with you? Well, I think that sounds pretty good. Mm-hmm. But if you can't take that safe, supporting, supportive friend with you, I would certainly make sure I had people that I could call if I found that I was vulnerable or in a difficult situation. Yep. And, you know, what would you do, for example, if um, you're walking down the street and someone's offering you some marijuana? Um, well, you know, I think I'd have to say no. And this but, might be early recovery. But, but you know, if, early certainly if you're in, uh, perhaps in Bali, and if you're in early recovery and you're in Bali, you're going to be offered all sorts of things. Mm, so what would you do there? Well, I think I'd have to say no, but it would be certainly perhaps tempting if you were in a, an early recovery. Maybe you would choose a destination where maybe you're not going to be offered those sorts of things. So that, if so that you kind of thing to... brings us back to it's always a good idea to, you know, make friends in recovery uh-huh. or uh-huh. Um, go with people who've got your back. True. Um, you know, your closest friends should be happy that you've got into recovery and that you no longer drink or take drugs or whatever your addiction is and they should have your back and be happy to go on holidays with you without you using. Friends in recovery are, are um, an amazing asset and they will make sure you, you, don't, um, you don't drink or drug. What, what, what are, what's an escape? plan david well an escape plan would be i suppose 
you know, like if I was at a party or something like that here in Melbourne and I felt vulnerable or whatever, I'd make sure that I had a taxi fare to get home or that I had a way to get remove myself out of that situation. So I suppose in international travel or in uh, Australia-wide travel, I suppose you'd need to make sure you had a safe place to go to. So maybe if you were staying in a hotel, you'd probably want to make sure it didn't have a huge minibar that was complimentary. <laughs> right. Well, I know people that have the minibar taken out of the room when they yeah, travel. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's yeah, true. Yeah. Um, also, I think uh, aeroplane travel and also airports can be a big sort of trigger. Huge duty-free areas. Um, well, I think they stress people who uh, aren't in recovery, don't they? Do that. Well, airports do yeah, to everybody. Do, yeah. But um, why? Do you have another suggestion for an escape plan when you're travelling? I think, um, well, the most obvious to me is, uh, and you may agree with this, is um, you know, you don't want to get too tired, you don't want to get too mm-hmm. hungry, you don't want mm-hmm. to get too lonely, you don't want to get too down because if you, especially if you're by yourself in those situations and you're travelling for work and, and business, they're the times that you think, oh, I really need a blah, 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 blah. So I think yeah. you've, you've got to still make sure when you're travelling that you get your eight hours sleep, that you have your three meals a day, that you um, that you do some sightseeing, you have good rest time, yeah. um, you know, get early yeah. nights and you, you do what normal people do and go out there and see the sights rather than, you know, hang around dirty old bars all the time. True. I know that you've no, I'm done... I'm being a bit judgmental. Well, yeah, but I know that you've also done travel in recovery and you've done travel before you made it to recovery and I, I yeah. don't know, which one's the best? <laughs> well, I can honestly tell you that I, you know, my travel pre-recovery in those last couple of years pre-recovery is I didn't see much of the I was going to say, remember any of it? No, nah, 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 it was nah. just a great big blur, um, as were most of my 30s and 40s. So, you know, now it's just amazing. You go to these places, yeah. I didn't even know what a museum was until I got into recovery. So, yeah, so there's some there's some good things you can do in recovery. I think. What, what about? Um, I know twelve step programs have people you can call, so they they have things also like, all around the world, I believe. Yeah, they have things like you know you've got a sponsor that you're allocated in twelve uh-huh. step programs, and you can do online meetings. Have you ever done an online meeting, David? Ah, uh, no, not that I know of, but yeah. I didn't realise that they were available. Yeah. And you travel with your recovery friends, don't you? Yeah, I do. where have you been in I recovery? Do. Oh, I've been in recovery with with people in a similar situation. I've been to Turkey, I've been to Jordan, uh, certainly around Europe, uh, India, Tokyo, Korea, lots of places. And it's always good to have somebody. But then, you know, many of my friends are also in that area as well. So, But, but I've, I've certainly engaged with other people overseas that are also in recovery that I've never met before in a certain number of those countries as well. It looks like we're going to be back with Hooked in just a moment. On Joy. Yeah, it's great to have your company on Joy 94.9 on Hooked on Joy's program about addiction. We've received a few SMSs. Uh, one of them is, is bush marijuana safer to smoke than hydroponics and does it have an effect on you? Followed up by Love Listening to Joy, by the way. Thank you from N. And also a message from... Scott, who says, Hi guys, enjoying the show. Russ, do you come from Geelong originally? Your voice is very familiar. Oh, get out of town, Scott. I am a Geelong boy, so you... I think I've got your number on the screen here. I'll have to text you after. I, if I believe it's the Scott I think it is, I I hope you're doing well, lovey. So. Well, I've got to tell you, with that other first question about marijuana, it's time to introduce... Addiction of the Week! Da, da. 
Okay. Now, I've got something to read out here. It says there's a secret addiction sweeping across Australia and we aren't hearing about it. We all know about the damaging effects of the monster drugs, ice and other hard narcotics. But what about the substances that are a little easier to get and widely spread? Marijuana is not something you often associate with the word addiction or consider it to be dangerous. But many people are hooked on the drug and it's a problem experts say we need to take more seriously. One particular study found that adults who smoked marijuana were more likely than non-users to also abuse alcohol. So the addiction of the week is marijuana this week. And we have a guest with us, Russ. We most certainly do. Today we have Sebastian in, and Sebastian is in recovery and goes to NA, which is called Narcotics Anonymous, and he is also a drug and alcohol counsellor. Welcome, Sebastian. Thank so you very much. <laughs> now, Sebastian, um, what do you know about, uh, well, how do you know about addiction of marijuana? Well, through my own personal experience, unfortunately. Yeah. Because there is a lot of conjecture. A lot of people say, oh, no, 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 it's not really addictive, and obviously for some people it is, and maybe for some people it isn't. But what do you think about the people that say, oh, marijuana, not addictive? Look, I think it doesn't depend so much on a particular substance. It's how somebody actually uses a substance. Like a substance uh, user can can just use it recreationally sometimes, Mm. Uh, but sometimes that use progresses on to abuse or even dependence. So there was a point that um, marijuana use for you became too much? Yeah, that happened pretty quickly for me, actually. When I first uh, had, you know, when I first discovered the effect of of marijuana, which for me gave me a feeling of euphoria, I became addicted to that euphoria pretty quickly. Mm. And how old were you when you had your first joint? Well, I started late. I started when I was uh, 28 years old, but Mm. I actually made up for starting late by the fact that it became daily use pretty much straight away. Did it? Yeah. So right. you really liked it, in other words. Because yeah. when you said you you started late, I thought you were going to say 15. Because all of my <laughs> peers, we all started when we were about 13 or 14. You know, it was quite a while back. But at the same time, they do say that uh, at least uh, 70% of people aged between 20 and 29 have at least tried using marijuana. So, you know, it is a very widespread drug and it's uh, certainly well tested. Um, I was reading a little story about a guy who was uh, smoking dope for 20 years and at the height of the addiction he said he could smoke up to 50 cones a day. He certainly became uh, dependent and overused it. He said that he would actually wake up early in the morning to have a few cones before the kids woke up, so he's carrying on a reasonably normal life, and also stay up late at night in order to have a few more and find every opportunity during the day. He also mentioned that it wasn't until he saw family photos that he was flicking through that he realised he was stoned in every single one where he got to a point where he felt, look, you know, this is a bit too much sort of thing. Did you uh, feel like that, Sebastian? Or? That it had uh, become a bit too much? Yes. Well, it was pretty clear to me towards the end of my using that my life was spiralling out of control because of my marijuana use. It was obvious to friends and family members uh, a lot earlier than it became obvious to me. I guess one of the characteristics of addiction is denial. Yes. So unfortunately I was in a lot of denial for a very long time. And we um and we don't like to admit that we've got an addiction or there's anything wrong with us. So I can I can relate to that wholeheartedly. What is marijuana? Is is my question. But um, maybe someone out there would like to to know what it is. I I know we can Wikipedia, but you might know a shorter version. So it's a psychoactive drug, meaning a mood and um, mind altering drug, which can produce euphoric effects. Uh, for some people, it can relax them, you know, mellow them out. But but I guess for me, it, it was very much. Um, 
you know, gave me that feeling of euphoria. Right. And it made you hypo, was it? A hyperactive or just, you know, just everything was great? And Yeah. yeah. So, for some people, uh, it, drugs can have a, a paradoxical effect. Yeah. So for a lot of people, it, it does mellow them out. But for me, it, it made me very active, um, particularly mentally. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. Tell because me about it. I know well, what you mean there. Also, you know, they, they say that uh, marijuana doesn't always have uh, classic sort of signs of addiction. You know, people don't necessarily become physically or chemically addicted to it, but they certainly become psychologically dependent upon it. And you're a drug and alcohol worker, so it, does that make sense? And how, how does that make sense? Well, I guess it's difficult sometimes to distinguish between a physical addiction and a psychological addiction. Mm-hmm. But, um, like, I see people... Uh, clients who talk about the fact that they, you know, wake up in the morning and and use marijuana straight away, and you know, often all through the day, and then in the middle of the night as well. So it's it's often quite difficult to distinguish between a psychological addiction and a and a, a physical dependence. It's perhaps not until you actually start the withdrawal process that you begin you begin to get a bit of an understanding of what the difference is between those two things. And that's the point that with any addiction, it's all about why. <laughs> You like to uh, not feel the things you're feeling. So, and that's when uh, these substance, substances come into use. So, Sebastian, was it easy to um, to get? And uh, how do you feel about marijuana these days? I mean, I, I know there are a lot of people out there that can't w- um, wait till it's legalised here and, and it, it's um, used for medicinal purposes and all of that sort of stuff. So, what do you, what's your general view on, on weed these days? Well... Because of the fact that I experienced drug psychosis as a result of marijuana, I think it's very important uh, to know that for a lot of people there is a very strong correlation between psychosis and mental health problems and, and marijuana. Often people see marijuana as a harmless drug, but um, you know, for many people it's not. Um, marijuana nowadays is often you know, fertilised with synthetic testosterone, so it can be very powerful. And those, um, synth- we did have uh, a discussion about the um, synth- synthetic uh, marijuana. Um, yeah, when Nurse Betty was here. Ago when Nurse yeah. Betty was here, and, and, and she was saying at the time that uh, nobody knows what's in there. You can. <laughs> well, I'm just talking about regular marijuana, which, which is actually fertilised with. Oh, yeah. okay. All right. Mm. So, yeah. Uh, can you shed light on uh, the SMS that we received? Is bush marijuana safer to smoke than hydroponics? And does it have a different effect on you? That's a that's a complicated question. I mean, I'm not going to talk so much about knowledge of the differences between the different types of um, marijuana. Yeah. For me, it was just a matter of what I can what Whatever I could, could get. get. Yeah. yeah, but yeah. I think it's it, it, is it safe? I mean, obviously, um, you've got to know the source that you're getting it from. If it's you know if it's grown naturally, and um, you know you can't really determine if something is organic or not but <laughs> uh you know if you're aware of getting it from a safe source and that it you know it's not as i said fertilized with synthetic tos- testosterone mm. to make it more powerful i was uh, just thinking about some of the signs really and it's the same with all addictions the classic signs is when you when you start to lose control and you actually start to need larger and larger amounts and when you're spending more time thinking about using or you're denying claims from those of us that are close to us that uh, we're different or we're actually spiralling out of control. Uh, when the substance use starts to take central role 
in your life and you spend more time and money acquiring marijuana. Also, you know, losing negative negative uh, consequences like losing jobs, losing friends, those sorts of mm. things. Are these the classic things that happen to you as well, Sebastian? That's right, yeah. There's a whole series of characteristics which indicate somebody's substance use might be becoming problematic. And in relation to the question before... Uh, you know, which type is the safest to use. I mean, there's also the question of, is marijuana itself safe to use? And if somebody is just using it recreationally occasionally, then obviously that's going to be much less of a problem if somebody feels like it's becoming regular and they're, or, you know, they're abusing it or even becoming dependent on it. And, yeah, and I agree with you. It's like that with any substance, isn't it? You, I still to this day ask, how can you drink normally? You know, when I drink, I like a lot. You know? one, one thing too that people often talk about when they experience, uh, you know, I guess a side effect of marijuana, people sometimes talk about paranoia mm. uh, as being particularly unpleasant. And often people will continue to, to smoke marijuana even though it's causing them to be paranoid, which is an unpleasant experience. So... And Almost becoming paranoid about their own paranoia. <laughs> I don't know. That's a bit um, meta. Yeah, I know. <laughs> also, I think, you know, the classic sign also, if you were using marijuana, that when you actually can't control your use of it anymore, then obviously there's, there's something going on there. So where, where would you turn to for help for using too much marijuana? Is there a, uh, are there support services available? There are support services available. Fortunately... It's possible to get uh, free drug and alcohol counselling through local community health centres. You can contact uh, DirectLine to get some information about how to access those. DirectLine is a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week um, drug and alcohol telephone counselling service. So, and you know, we can certainly talk about uh, treatment pathways. Um, there are support groups like Narcotics Anonymous and Smart Recovery that I believe we're going to talk a little bit about. Well, we are. About we're going to talk about the actual work that you do as a drug and alcohol counsellor straight after this break. <laughs> is Hooked on Joy 94.9. You're listening to Hooked with David and Russ, Joy 94.9's program about addiction. If you're experiencing immediate problems or if content of this program raises issues that cause distress, you can call Lifeline on 131114 or Beyond Blue on 1300 224636. We're here with Sebastian tonight and we're talking about marijuana. Sebastian is uh, an addict. He's in uh, Narcotics Anonymous and he is a drug and alcohol counsellor. Which also means that if you have any questions for a drug and alcohol counsellor, yep. you might like to send us a message on 0427 join 949. That'd be great. Sebastian, how bad did it get? What was your rock bottom and, and did you see it coming? Well, my rock bottom was definitely the fact that my drug use, my marijuana use resulted in uh, drug psychosis and I was actually hospitalised in a psychiatric hospital. Mm. So that was pretty traumatic and unfortunately that happened uh, repeatedly until it got to the point where I decided that I just can't live like this because, as I said, I hadn't started marijuana until I was 28 and I was quite successful uh, in my life. Um, How old were you when, you when you got into recovery? I was uh, 44, I think. Yeah. Okay, so that's yeah. still 16 years of... 16 years of active uh, addiction. Yeah. 16 is, years of craziness. Yeah, I know. And did you... Um, so how many times would you have ended up in hospital over that period? 
Oh, I feel like I'd rather not answer you that question. Don't have to, you don't have <laughs> to answer anything <laughs> on this program. Many, no, many times. It's, yeah, it was actually yeah. about 19 times. Wow. Which okay. is embarrassing, but one of, as I said, one of the characteristics of addiction is, is denial. So it took mm. me many, many years to actually understand that I had a problem. And as I said, I'd become addicted to that, that feeling of euphoria. Yeah. Also, one of the uh, classic definitions of insanity is uh, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different outcome. Mm. Exactly. And were your medical people, you know, giving you the heads up, this is why you're here, or did they ask you if you well, had a look, problem was, with, um, with marijuana? Well, that was part of the problem. Because of the drug psychosis, I think for the first years, I was treated as someone with a mental health problem mm. rather than as somebody who was experienced like experiencing psychosis because of his marijuana use. And obviously I can't blame the mental health system for my problems. However, nowadays... That there is what we call a no wrong door approach. So if somebody with a drug problem is going into the mental health system, ideally they will be assisted to resolve both their mental health issues and their uh, drug and alcohol, you know, substance abuse problems. Wow. So I think if there'd been an, an understanding from the system a lot earlier that it was the marijuana which was causing psychosis for me, I would have got into recovery a whole lot earlier. When did that sort of change come about within the uh, drug and alcohol system? Well, that's been a gradual change. I think um, it's still, it hasn't been implemented perfectly, but there's a lot more communication between the mental health system and um, drug and alcohol treatment system nowadays. So ideally, everybody working in those uh, systems should have what we call um, dual diagnosis capacity, meaning ability to treat both mental health and drug and alcohol problems or at least refer on if they're not able to. That becomes more of a team effort rather than uh, a competing effort between different factions of within our own health system. So yeah. everybody starts to come together and work as a whole team. Yeah, and look, there are still psychologists nowadays that say, oh, look, I, don't really, I can't really treat somebody with uh, drug and alcohol problems. You have to go off and see a specialist in that area or... You know, less so the other way around. Yeah. Because if somebody is, you know, in a drug and alcohol treatment uh, program, they're very highly likely to have mental health problems. Exactly right. In fact, it's it's an exception if they don't have mental health problems they haven't acquired along the way. And you were one of those people. So how do you go from that place to get to become a drug and alcohol counsellor? Well, for me, it was... uh, you know, after spending many years in the mental health system, it wasn't actually until I got into Narcotics Anonymous that I really began to make changes in my life. It was actually by joining Narcotics Anonymous that I realised that, uh, you know, I, I actually need to stop and I wanted to stop. In the past, I had tried to stop, but I actually couldn't stay stopped. Yeah. And was it suggested to you or did you... Uh, someone in the in the mental health system suggests that maybe you should try Narcotics Anonymous, or did you just find out about it through your own research? Look, a bit of a bit of both of those things, as you said about your um, you know your own recovery. My <laughs> recovery is a bit of a blur. I'd actually heard about Narcotics Anonymous, I think, for the first time on a TV show called Brothers and Sisters. One oh, of the okay. characters had a had a drug problem, but I'd also done a a brief workshop. I was really naive at that time. Mm. I had done a two-hour a week uh, workshop for um, as a client for about eight weeks and I thought that's what rehab was. <laughs> so, 
So, so you got through and you were there and you were okay after that. Yeah, somebody from AA came along to talk to us and I didn't really relate because I'd never had a problem with alcohol. But when I saw that uh, TV show Brothers and Sisters, I thought, oh, obviously there's something very similar yeah. for people with uh, drug problems. I remember Brothers and Sisters. It was a good show. Yeah, so yeah. eventually I, when I went along to Narcotics Anonymous and got some abstinence and got some support through that program and got a sponsor and became really involved in that and uh so you ask for help obviously and and those who ask you do get help which is great your uh family um they you said they had some idea that there was a problem with the drugs and this all then comes back to denial as we spoke about before um so when it was time your family was there your narcotics anonymous was there was it all very did it all come together very easily for you i don't think anyone would describe no. uh, early recovery as easy <laughs> yeah. but it I, I did have support. My family was very supportive. I was also doing drug and alcohol counselling. I did drug and alcohol counselling for four years. Mm. Many you had a counsellor? Yeah, as a yeah. client, yep. Yeah. And I've also done a lot of therapy, but all through, the, through my recovery, um, you know, I've been abstinent now for 10 years, eight months and 10 days. Congratulations. Thank Congratulations. you. Congratulations. So, yeah, I've, I've attended uh, NA meetings regularly all through that time. Yeah. And, and we often say in recovery, it's the hardest thing that we've ever done in our lives and it's, of course, the best thing that we've ever done in our lives. Did you find, um, describe NA for us. I mean, should anybody out there who, who, who has got a narcotics or a, a marijuana problem, should they be frightened about going to NA? Uh Look, I think it's understandable to be nervous about going to any group of people that you don't know, mm. but it's definitely worth it. I think when people get to the stage where they realise, look, I can't actually do this by myself, people might have tried to get some clean time, some abstinence, but not be able to do that. And we reach a point where we realise that we need help, and that's what it's all about. And there's an expression in... Um, Narcotics Anonymous, which is uh, that the therapeutic value of one addict helping another is unparalleled. Yeah. Well, I mean, you obviously work in the sector, so you're probably even better positioned because you're a peer. So having finished, well, got the addiction out of the way and started recovery, how did you actually become a drug and alcohol counsellor from there? Was that just because of self-interest or you thought, oh, you know, I know something about this, I think I'll go and get a degree in in, uh, drug and alcohol counselling work or what did you do there? Well, look, I had such an incredible relationship with my own sponsor Mm -hmm. and I eventually started sponsoring people as well and was able to pass on that gift and support other people. But I had actually studied psychology at uni many many years ago Mm -hmm. so i initially started studying uh drug and alcohol work and then counseling as part of my own recovery to improve my own communication skills and to improve my own my own recovery i guess and i found that it was really helpful and i was really enjoying it and uh, i decided to continue counseling and and really wanted to to get a job as a drug and alcohol counselor so i'm really lucky that i'm working in the field of my dream job now what is a sponsor a sponsor is a type of mentor somebody who has uh worked the program who can share their own experience strength and hope um somebody who has ideally a significant amount of of clean time and can support you through the process answer lots of questions and yeah help you work the the 12-step program and just one question before we go to a break does it cost anything to be a member of na it does not no There's a plus for you there already. Well, the price sounds right. Look, we're going to hear a little bit more about Sebastian's uh, work as a drug and alcohol counsellor after this break.
on Joy. And once again, thank you for listening to Hooked on Joy, Joy 94.9's program about addiction. What an easy topic. Oh, it's a great topic. Lots it is to a cover, great. though, in and out. There is a lot. And tonight we have Sebastian. He is uh, recovering. He's in recovery. But he's also a drug and alcohol counsellor. Uh, what sort of work do you end up with on a daily basis? Who comes and visits you? Well, it can be anything from people wanting to decrease their alcohol use. Usually if they're seeing me for a substance other than alcohol, they usually just want to stop. Yes. <laughs> But I guess because alcohol is socially ratified, people entertain the idea that they can just decrease their alcohol use. But um, it can be all sorts of uh, legal problems, mental health problems, family problems, relationship problems, self-esteem issues. People might have lost their jobs. Do you find it's easier to ID with with your clients because you've been there, you've done that? As a peer. As a peer, absolutely. It is. That can also be a challenge if I'm over-identifying with clients and that's something that I need to discuss in my own clinical supervision. Right. Okay. So it's not as simple as, you know, when I did this or when I did that, you've got to have some sort of um, anonymity, I guess is the best way to describe it, or professionality about it. That's right. And maintaining healthy boundaries. And uh, it's also important to, you know, it's obviously all about the client and my professional role as a counsellor, I only use self-disclosure very sparingly and only if it's going to be therapeutic for the client. How would you assist somebody wanting to stop smoking marijuana who came to see you? So, well, it depends on what stage of change the person is at. We talk about different stages of change. If somebody is at the point where they're just contemplating it, we can explore the pros and cons of of using and and stopping. Somebody might be at the stage where they're already thinking about taking some action so we can explore their plans, uh, help them to put some strategies in place, monitor how those strategies are going a little bit further on down the track. If they feel that they need some more intensive support, there might be options like detox or rehab. Mm. You know, we offer home-based detox. Uh, There's also residential detox and rehab options for people with more serious problems. And I'm curious, with uh, marijuana, is that, again, a drug where there is none of this, uh, well, we're going to cut you back to one a day, let's see how that goes, that, that's not likely to be successful? Is that something that you wouldn't look at in, um, from a counselling point of view? Would you prefer people to, um, to stop completely? I know with um, the likes of Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous, they're abstinence programs, but is there people that would come to you and say, look, I, I think I smoke too much, I'd like to do less of this? There are people in that situation, yeah. It's very much, you asked if it's about, you know, what I want, what I would like. It's very much about what the client would like. Obviously, yes, it has exactly. to be, yep. yeah, obviously it has to be the client's choice. Yep. But I have noticed that it's, it's much more frequent for alcohol users to talk about decreasing their substance use. Usually when people come into treatment voluntarily, I'll qualify that, if they're coming into treatment voluntarily in relation to their marijuana use, it's because they want to stop. I also see some clients who are mandated through the court system uh, to attend counselling and they may be 
uh, required, for example, to stop their alcohol use, but they may just be using marijuana recreationally. You know, it's funny because that's something I wanted to touch on. Uh, just briefly, I've got a message in that says, Hi guys, great show tonight. I think that many people think Narcotics Anonymous is just for people addicted to what are seen as hard drugs, but as your guest eloquently explained, long-term abuse of any substance can cause serious issues, and it's great to hear about how he was able to turn his around his life around. Thank you for that message. But, you know, I was just thinking my particular uh, perception of a drug and alcohol counsellor comes from, okay, well, you know, I've, I've just been using heaps of ice. Uh, we had Jack Nagel on last week and he got into serious difficulties with his ice addiction. And maybe I've uh, robbed and stolen things and whatever. Maybe I've been caught by the police. I'm going to be up on charges. I'll be going to court very soon. I know, I better go and see a drug and alcohol counsellor because it's going to make me look a lot better when I face that magistrate and say, oh, I'm doing something about it. And, I mean, you know, I don't mean that of all drug and alcohol counsellors, but it, it just sort of I suddenly think of people with really serious problems ending up in that system but you were talking about a holistic approach but uh, do you see a lot of people certainly in that that space of ice addiction at the moment yes definitely and I think it's always important to distinguish between voluntary clients and clients that are mandated Mm. so obviously clients that are mandated may not necessarily be wanting to make changes but they might be forced to make changes. And that's the big difference. And I hesitate to say that because I mean obviously no one can really make somebody stop unless they're wanting to stop but there might be a lot of pressure on people in terms of you know potentially breaching their corrections order or stuff like that. So Sebastian when did the desire to stop having marijuana leave you? Uh, We talk about these addictions like you know people in the real world can turn around and say I don't understand why they have a problem with it you know I have a puff and then I'm fine but for addicts they can't put it down Um, and then you talk about a time where you know you've, you've identified that you've got a problem with a drug and you need to stop but that doesn't mean that the desire and the um uh, the the uh, the problem to to smoke just goes away just like that does it so because for me the consequences of my marijuana use were so significant i wasn't plagued by by cravings and i didn't feel the desire to continue using so a lot of people in recovery talk about having that problem that they're initially in early recovery anyway they're they're plagued by using thoughts and they find it very very distressing right but fortunately i didn't have that problem because of the fact that my the consequences for me of being institutionalized with drug psychosis yeah i just and that's what we would definitely call a rock bottom for you that was you know time out i can't do this anymore yeah and so when you arrived at NA, was there a period where you could, that you got the, the light bulb switch went on and you decided, wow, okay, this is me. I, I can have a life without my addiction. This is fantastic. Yeah, well, initially it was an understanding that I can live a, a life free from drugs. It was a shock, certainly for the first three months at least. How did this happen to me? How did I end up in this situation? But... The recovery process is quite a slow process. Uh, it's it's definitely the most difficult thing that I've ever done, but also the most rewarding thing that I've ever done because I've been able to make a whole lot of changes in my recovery and I'm now doing things that I would never have dreamed possible even before 
and, and they would be things like you know you've you've made your dreams come true your health is 100% you've you've probably extended your life by 10 15 20 years all positive stuff maybe 100 years oh, let's um, hope so i'm just wondering because uh, i wanted to ask a question about your addiction and also sexual identity because you would also see people uh, grappling with their own sexual identity in the drug and alcohol uh, counselling space. Um, was it part of your story as well? It was. I experienced uh, homophobia as a child and, um, I mean, I don't have to go back to my childhood. I just have to think of the, uh, well, the postal like? vote. Yeah, yeah, I know, the marriage yeah, equality. Yeah, yeah. The homophobia and that's that been in the news lately, of course. Yeah, so anybody that experiences any type of discrimination or, you know, particularly homophobia can be really distressing for, for people and people can live in a state of hypervigilance and that can seriously affect their mental health. So I, I saw that it had affected my mental health and so that was something I needed to address in early recovery as well. Right, yeah, because we seem to... Well, obviously, this is what our program is about as well, how it ties back to our uh, sexual identity. Now, before we came on air tonight, you also mentioned, because you've talked about one of the A's, which is the NA, and there are a number of them, but also there was another resource that you were talking to me about before we started, and I'd like to finish on this. Uh, it's called SMART Recovery. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so SMART Recovery stands for SMART, stands for self-management and recovery training so i became very interested in smart recovery because i had done a lot of group therapy myself as a client and was very interested in uh, co-facilitating groups so smart recovery is a program where there's very much a focus on the last seven days and the next seven days so the mm -hmm. catchphrase is come with a problem and leave with a plan smart recovery meetings focus on motivational enhancement problem solving lifestyle balance and dealing with urges and cravings and some people that may not necessarily feel comfortable about going along to a 12-step fellowship meeting for one reason or another might be a little more amenable to going along to a smart recovery meeting so we'll certainly uh, put a link to their website on our uh, podcast as soon as i pop that up on wednesdays so. now we are running out of time tonight sebastian it has been absolutely fantastic having you on I think, um, as this is obviously a, a GLBTIQ uh, radio show, you um, would like to let everybody out there know that there are NA GLBTI meetings. Yes, we have uh, three GLBTIQ NA meetings in Melbourne at the moment. And uh, obviously it's a little bit nerve-wracking to go along to a group where you don't know anybody, but we've all been through that situation ourselves. So we make every effort to be as welcoming as possible. For the newcomers, yeah. Yeah, for the newcomers. And it's possible to, to ring the NA hotline as well. And Do you know what their number is off the top of your head? Or is there a website they can go and look? Yeah, they can. If, Google, if they Google Narcotics Anonymous Australia or Narcotics Anonymous Victoria, they'll find that telephone number. Right. And they can actually just say, hey, look, I'm new and I'd like to go along to a meeting. I'm a little bit nervous about going by myself. Can you arrange for somebody to meet me before a meeting? But look, any meeting that you go to if you get on the na website you'll find the um glbtiq meetings and if you arrive you know five or ten minutes before and just say to somebody hey look this is my very first meeting we'll take you under our wing and, nice. and be welcomed unconditionally chances are they'll here. run into sebastian and that'll be fantastic well exactly we're, we're going to say i know we have to say good night and thank you so much sebastian for coming in tonight thank you very much for having me it's, it's been, been our pleasure we hope that you've enjoyed tonight's show and remind you that if there are, if you're experiencing immediate problems or if content of this program raises issues that cause distress you can call lifeline on 
1114 or Beyond Blue on 132 It is important to move away from self-destructive reasoning. Recovery involves breaking the cycle of addiction, removing the trigger of negative thinking and restoring us to emotional sobriety. One of the greatest highs in life is feeling good about ourselves. Always remember that none of us are alone in this world and the first step to recovery is to ask for help. We want our community to be one of hope and look forward to your company next week as we continue to explore addiction on Hooked. Meanwhile, it's goodbye from Russ. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from me, David. Goodbye. You can find more Joycast and show blogs. Go to joy.org.au. Thanks for listening to another Joy podcast brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Help us keep Joy on air. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community.